Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back. We are in the middle of the trial of Abinadi. This is one of those moments when I don't love our modern chapter breaks. If we didn't let formatting change the way we read, it wouldn't be as much of a factor, but we can't get around the impact of formatting. Even in this podcast, I'm always going back and forth in my head about how to help listeners see Mormon's formatting and structure and how to stay close enough to the modern formatting so that it's not confusing. But we definitely left off at a point where Mormon really wants us to start paying attention to Abinadi. He could have told us more about this trial. He said in chapter 12 that they went back and forth before the priests ended up asking him about Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. We don't get any of that back and forth. So we have to think that Mormon really wants us to focus on what we do get going forward. Remember, at the end of last episode, I said that Abinadi was just getting warmed up. He had turned the tables on the priests and asked them, since they believed that they are saved and already living in the kingdom, how they believed that happened. Was it the law of Moses? The priest said yes. But Abinadi disagrees. Salvation cannot come by the law. First, the priests aren't even keeping the law, so that immediately puts an end to that reasoning. But even if someone does keep the law, it's the Lord that saved Moses and the Israelites from Egypt, and it's the Lord who continues to be the source of salvation. Abinadi will expound on these ideas moving forward, but for now, let's jump into Mosiah 13. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. King Noah, who's been silent for a bit now, speaks up and accuses Abinadi of being crazy. Away with this fellow and slay him. For what have we to do with him? For he is mad. It would be helpful to hear Noah say these words to understand exactly what he means by them. So far, it doesn't sound like Noah is very involved in the affairs of the kingdom, but that the priests are really the primary governing body. Noah seems more interested in the image of power and the life of status than actually governing. Does he really not care what's unfolding in front of him? It's possible that he's barely listening to the back and forth between Abinadi and the priests, and that he finds the discussion about details of prophecy to be tedious. Kind of like a, why are we even listening to this guy? He's crazy. Just take him and kill him so I can get back to my wine and my women approach. Another option is that Noah is as involved as the priests, that he sees Abinadi as a real threat, and that he thinks that if he can make the people think that Abinadi is crazy, he can undermine the truths that Abinadi has exposed about the wickedness of Noah's courts. This kind of fallacy is called the ad hominem fallacy. Instead of dealing with the substance of an argument, you try and attack the character of the person to discredit them. It can be extremely effective. There are other options, but in reality, it's probably a combination. These are people that we're dealing with, and people are complicated. Though I tend to favor the first one. Noah doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that likes to read scripture. And compared to the priests, he definitely comes across as a vain windbag who loves the praise of being king, but hates the work. While the priests, on the other hand, are the ones driving the interrogation. And we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Mosiah that they have a collective skill at seizing power. Upon Noah's command, the guards try and take Abinadi, but Abinadi responds by commanding them not to touch him. Here we get a stark contrast. 
of state power versus prophetic power. Noah's power is based on his ability to command others to commit violence. He doesn't want to hear from Abinadi, so he's going to silence him by commanding his guards to execute him. If one of the guards hesitates, or I don't know, one of the priests objects, there's some foreshadowing for you, he'll just have them killed, which will dissuade others from resisting. It generally takes a carefully planned, coordinated, and often violent revolution to overthrow the violent power of the state. Now let's compare that to Abinadi's prophetic power, which is entirely based on what God will do and won't do. He's there to deliver a message, and he'll be protected by God until he delivers that message. It's not coordinated or complicated. It's straightforward and direct. Abinadi can do this because he has nothing to hide. He's not campaigning in any form or fashion. He doesn't need to be popular. There's this telling line in Abinadi's response to the king's execution order. God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time, but I must fulfill the commandments wherewith God has commanded me. He very likely knows that he's not getting out of this alive, but he'll be protected long enough to carry out his mission. This reminds me of one of my favorite hymns, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. You probably know the significance of that song, that it was sung at Carthage Jail before Hiram and Joseph Smith were killed by the mob. That alone has some echoes of Abinadi. But if you aren't familiar with the hymn, it's beautiful and deserves to be studied. It's scripture. A Poor Wayfaring a Man of Grief was originally a poem called The Stranger and His Friend. And it's told from the perspective of the friend who encounters the same stranger throughout his life in different moments of crisis. Each time the friend finds the stranger, he offers service and in return receives an unanticipated heavenly gift that mirrors the service that he rendered. So for giving the stranger bread, the friend receives manna, and for giving a drink of water, he tastes living water, and so forth. This relationship culminates in an ultimate crisis. The friend finds the stranger in prison, accused of treason and condemned, and is called to make an impossible choice. Here are the last two stanzas of the poem. In prison I saw him next, condemned, to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed, and honored him mid shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try, he asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but my free spirit cried, I will. Then, in a moment to my view, the stranger darted from disguise. The tokens in his hands I knew, my Savior stood before mine eyes. He spake, and my poor name he named. Of me thou hast not been ashamed. These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. I can't tell you how many times I've been overcome with tears when singing these last two verses. Nobody witnessed the friendship. It was all done in secret and without fanfare. But the Savior knew the friend and his love. Growing up, I assumed that this poem had a happy ending. But as I've sat with it over the years, I've come to think that it wasn't the happy ending that I had originally thought. In my mind, I see the stranger who has had an execution order placed on him for being a traitor, for going against the state and the popular political trends of his day. And despite the public pressure, the shame and scorn, and the weakness of his flesh, 
the friend chooses to not be ashamed, but to remain and defend his friend. He's not going to deny his association for fear of the fallout. I see them both, stranger and friend, being dragged before the crowd, taking the full brunt of the public outrage together. And in that moment, the stranger reveals himself, but only to the friend. Everyone else just sees two traitors who deserve to die. The courts have ruled, the news pundits have all had their say, and their execution is trending on Twitter, but only the friend and the stranger know what is really happening. These deeds shall thy memorial be. Fear not, thou didst them unto me. You don't build memorials for the living. Mormon tells that when Abinadi stood in prophetic power against the execution, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses's did while in the Mount of Sinai, while speaking with the Lord. I told you in the last episode that Mormon wanted us to see the comparison between Abinadi and Moses, and now he makes it explicit. Abinadi isn't alone. He's seen the stranger revealed. He's speaking with the Lord like Moses, even if he's still on trial and nobody else knows it. He hasn't been ashamed of the Lord. Continuing on to verses 6 through 24, Abinadi says, Ye see that ye have not power to slay me. Therefore, I finish my message. Yea, and I perceive that it cuts you to your hearts, because I tell you the truth concerning your iniquities. Yea, and my words fill you with wonder and amazement and with anger. But I finish my message, and then it mattereth not whether I go, if it so be that I am saved. But this much I tell you, what you do with me after this shall be a type and a shadow of things which are to come. Abinadi has passed his test and is in no way working to save his life at this point. But he does warn Noah and his priests that his fate will only be a type and a shadow of their fate. This prophecy, I think, has double fulfillment. A type is a mark that is left after being struck with something, like how a typewriter works. Or you could think of an old wax seal stamped with a signet. Their actions towards Abinadi will stamp their fate in this life upon them. Abinadi will eventually be burned alive for his testimony. Noah is burned by the people in Mosiah 19, and the priests are burned in Alma 25. So that's one fulfillment. But Abinadi's death also serves as a shadow that Noah and his priests will cast throughout eternity if they don't repent. He'll later warn them that upon resurrection, if they be evil, they'll be resurrected to an endless damnation, being delivered up to the devil who hath subjected them, which is damnation, having gone according to their own carnal will and desires, having never called upon the Lord while the arms of mercy were extended towards them. For the arms of mercy were extended toward them, and they would not, they being warned of their iniquities, and yet they would not depart from them, and they were commanded to repent, and they would not repent. Doesn't this line up well with a poor wayfaring man of grief? How we treat others is a stamp and a shadow of what we'll receive, whether for good or evil. Abinadi continues and finishes the chapter by quoting the rest of the Ten Commandments because he perceives that they are not written in the hearts of Noah and his priests and that they have studied and taught iniquity for the most part of their lives. Surely the priests knew the commandments just as we do. 
It should be a reminder to us that it isn't enough to know the gospel or the scriptures. They must be written on our hearts. In fact, I went to graduate school and studied theology with some incredibly smart people. But when I think of the clearest examples of discipleship, my mind often goes to people who know far less than most of my peers in grad school. At this point, I think Abinadi senses that he won't inspire a mass movement of repentance. Maybe he always knew that he wouldn't. Who knows if he even believed anyone would be inspired by his words, though, as readers, we know that somebody was. The rest of this chapter sounds very much like a testimony for the sake of creating a record against Noah and his priests. They can never, from then on out, say that they never knew the commandments of the Lord. We'll wrap up there for today. I've always loved Abinadi for his words, but I'm beginning to love him more for his life. I hope that we won't be ashamed of the strangers that the Lord puts in our lives. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.